Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me on a deep dive into the history of my Christian faith the history of the Bible, the canon of the Bible, how scriptures were put together and how that all worked, how the early church worshipped and how that changed throughout history, what happened at the Reformation and beyond. And it was then, on that deep dive, that I encountered the Catholic Church. It looms large in history, and there it was. And it was then, as I began to read from actual Catholic theologians, actual Catholic authors, from actual Catholic sources, that I realized what I thought I knew about the Catholic Church was based in large part on misinformation and simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast starts to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I have a real Catholic author or speaker or guest talking about a real Catholic issue from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, an absolute barn burner of a show. I am joined by Father Mauro Gagliardi to talk about Mary. Why do Catholics make such a big deal about Mary? And this is a great episode, guys. I think this is the one to share. We've had discussions about Mary before on this show. I have Mary in the early church, Mary in typology in the the old and the new, Uh, Mary for new converts. We've had all these episodes, and they are fantastic. Don't get me wrong, but this might be the episode to share with friends and family who are skeptical about the role that Mary plays in the Catholic Church and has played in the Church throughout history because we go deep and Guys, Father Morrow, if you watch this episode on YouTube at youtube.com slash Catholic, you'll see he is smiling the entire time. He is such a warm and, and cordial and genial guy. Just enthusiasm for the Catholic faith, for our theology, and for Mary and her role and who she is. We dig into really the dogmas of Mary, how Mary fits in the history of salvation, and really, as we unpack these things, I think you will see, I think you will see why Catholics make such a big deal about Mary. It it really fits. And you may have to, as I have done it, listen to this interview a few times. I've listened back to it a number of times now as I've been ed- editing it and, and letting it all sink in, because behind so many of Father Morrow's words, there is much more depth behind there. And you'll see why the Catholic Church says the things it does about Mary, really in such deep, deep roots in theology and in how all these things fit together. So really, one of those episodes to share with friends and family Listen to it a few times because really it's a fantastic dive into why Catholics make such a big fuss about Mary. It's great. This conversation and all others on this show are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash Catholic. And I have some new patrons to thank this week. Thank you to Julie. Thank you to Jude. Thank you to Brandon. Thank you, David. And thank you, Andre, for your new support of the show. Wow, guys, it is incredible that people like this show, that they're, they're, feel moved to support this show in any way, and that goes a long way to help this thing to keep going and growing. It's not my full-time job, guys, and your support helps me to find time to be able to do that and to support this show, and thank you so much. If you want to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or a one-time donation at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic as well. 
Thank you, guys. And without any further ado, my fantastic conversation with Father Mauro Gagliardi on why Catholics make such a big deal about Mary. Please listen and enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Thank you for watching. Thank you for being here. We have a fantastic discussion this week for you. Uh, one you do not want to miss. So uh, stay tuned. Um, don't go anywhere. I mean, don't go anywhere. Listen, you're going to love it, okay? My guest is Father Moro Gagliardi. He is a priest of the Archdiocese of Salerno in Italy and professor at the Pontifical Anthenium. I practiced that before. Regina Apostolorium and visiting professor at the Angelicum. Maybe you can help me out after with those names, Father. He was appointed by Pope Benedict as consultor to the Office of Liturgical Celebrations of the Supreme Pontiff and consultor to the Congregation of for Divine Worship and the Disciplines of the Sacraments. He is the author of 10 books, including, for our purposes here today, Truth is a Synthesis, Catholic Dogmatic Theology, a book that requires at least two hands to hold and actually, Father, won't fit on my bookshelf. I have no room for this book. It sits on a table here because it's too big for what I have here. I have to get a new shelf, I think, is the solution. Father, thank you for being here. Welcome and hello. It's a pleasure, Keith. Thank you for having me here. And uh, hello to everyone who is following us from home. <laughs> this will be a, a great conversation. As I mentioned, Father, this book is fantastically enormous and it's fantastic. So thank you for your contribution to this amazing realm of Catholic theology. It does require two hands to hold, and you got to kind of work out to actually be able to pick it up, I think, a little bit. It's fantastic. I want to begin with kind of the, the overarching kind of theme of this book, which is the idea of this the synthesis. The truth is a synthesis, you've called this book. So I want to begin there, because this is especially important. Uh, our audience, you guys who are listening and watching, know this. has made up a lot, a lot of non-Catholic Christians looking into the Catholic faith, Protestant Christians, new Catholics, and and especially this book, the way you the the way you take on this book, this idea of the synthesis, really I think speaks a lot to to that audience. So can we just talk about first as a whole the book? What is this synthetic principle that kind of underlies your theology in this book? How does that work? Yeah, it's a, a complete dogmatic and fundamental theology. Title is Truth is a Synthesis. Here we go. Uh, the original Italian uh, was slightly different in Italian is la verità e sintetica so it would have been translated into truth is synthetic but then the translators told me synthetic means more kind of artificial so it's better if we change it a little and I agreed with them so why synthesis why truth is a synthesis well I took this of course not a synonym to a brief or short uh, in fact, as you said, it's uh, more than 1,000 pages, so <laughs> it might seem like a joke, truth is a synthesis, and then you have this hefty tone. But the problem is that uh, I take the, the term in a theological way, and I took it from uh, an ecumenical council, in fact, from the first millennium, uh, the second council of Constantinople in the year 553, and there, the, the bishops of the council said that the union of the two natures, divine and human in Christ, is a synthetic union, or is a, is a union according to a synthesis, okay? And they use that expression in Greek, katasyuntesin, three times in the same canon, the canon four. 
Um, so th this is important because uh, our uh, hearers uh, uh, might be familiar with um, the expression hypostatic union, I guess, uh, and they know that by hypostatic union we mean that the two natures of Christ, divine and human nature, uh, are one in the one person, in one hypostasis of Christ, correct? So there is this, this hypostatic, hypostatic, namely personal union in Christ. But the fathers of that council said that the hypostatic union is a synthetic union. It's a union that makes a synthesis of divine and human in Christ. So Christ is one as a synthesis of God and man. Uh, that implies, and uh, we go here. We go to my point. Implies that uh, Christ is a mystery that is one, is one, but he has two sides, two natures, two elements, so to speak. And these two elements are in harmony. They stand together. They stay together without being suppressed one by the other, uh, but forming a unity an unsuppressible unity. You cannot dissolve that unity of these two elements. So in Christ, you have a both end, okay? You have, he's both God and he's also man. So you have, he's both God and man, but he, we say he, we don't say they are God and man. He is in the singular. So it's one person, unity, two elements, two natures, both end. And this is the theme of the both end, which in, in Latin is known as the et-et principle, which is the architectural principle of my uh, expose or my treatment in the, in the book. So I show that the, the whole of um, a fundamental and dogmatic theology can be presented and, and, and explained utilizing such a principle. Mm -hmm. So if you want, I can explain more, but I don't want to talk too much. I don't know if... Well, that's a, that's a great point you make there, this idea of the both and, right? And I love the way of framing that. There's always this this logic to Catholicism, and I know this is a thing that a lot of converts will say, and, my, and myself included as a Catholic convert, somebody who found the faith. There's this underlying logic in Catholicism that comes right from, from, from natural law. It begins and permeates all of Catholicism. Whereas we, we used to, or we did as, as say, Protestants, many of us, I was an evangelical, we, we approached our theology kind of piecemeal, kind of piecing together different, different authors we liked or theologians we liked. Someone might, might read your book if you were a Protestant theologian and like your theology and go, yeah, this guy's got it figured out. But this guy over here from different tradition has a different opinion, right? There's all kinds of different ways of piecing together your theology as a non-Catholic Christian. But you look into the Catholic Faith. Look into the the Catholic tradition of, of how the Church sees itself. The tradition of Catholic theology, and there's this logic there that that you can find, and then you can create a whole, a whole an enormous book as you've done based on this very clear principle that that dates back from the beginning of how God has has revealed Himself to us. Right. So there's this underlying logic of the Catholic faith, and this is really one of those pieces of that logic. I think is that is that fair to say? Of course, sure, you're correct. Um, and that logic, uh, it comes from natural law, but because natural law comes in its turn from the creator, from the supernatural being, it's a, a reflection of the being of God in a sense. So there is a, a logic in creation because God is in the first place, logos, as St. John says in his gospel. 
when we read the word became flesh, we know that in the original Greek, that the word is logos, whole logos. So God, one of the names of God is logos. Logos in Greek means word. It means also reason. It means science, intellect. So there is a fundamental logic in creation as a reflection of the perfect, supernatural, eternal, uh, infinite, logic uh, nature of God himself, in that sense. Um, and so uh, this principle of the attempt is um, an expression of the logic of God himself, uh, even before the logic of creation, uh, is because, because Christ is the Logos incarnated, the Logos who took flesh, that in theology we can see and develop this logic of the faith. Uh, so it is not just a human thought uh, which is uh, um, imposed on revelation. In fact, one of the main points that I make is that I, uh, of course, I did not create this both-end principle. It is present in Catholic thought uh, since uh, you know, the beginning, we might say, but uh, I and the others who, uh, you know, make recourse to it, we didn't actually create anything. It, it's there. This is very important because you have so many systematics in, in theology. You know, you, as, you, as you said before, right, I like that one, I like uh, that author, I like the other, the other theologian. That is fine, but the problem is a theologian should, in the first place, uh, give an account to... Uh, the revelation, he should explain the word of God that he has received in faith. Uh, he's not supposed to create his own uh, patterns of thought, his ideas, his systems, and impose them uh, upon the revelation. He's supposed to learn from revelation. So the system in theology is important, but it's a system that you develop from within the revelation and not imposing the to it from outside. Um, and that is the, what we can take uh, with, according to prudence, from some uh, famous Protestant authors such as Karl Barth, for example. Of course, I cannot accept uh, the, 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 the method of Karl Barth in, in its entirety, of course, uh, but uh, partially we can because he teaches us that the word of God comes first. Then, then he doesn't acknowledge the importance of philosophy and human thought as well, and we Catholics do. But in that sense, we can take from, from him and others uh, that attention to the fact that in the first place, God speaks. Huh? And then we, uh, we also can reflect, also utilizing intellectual, natural tools, uh, instruments on that word and that word. Uh, another aspect, if I may, of, uh, of my reflection about the both-end principle is that uh, I think this is maybe the most original contribution I have given, because, as I said, this is nothing new. Uh, there, are, there is no shortage of authors, especially in the past, who have written and spoken about the at-at, so not uh, presenting myself as you know, somebody who created the new thing. No. Uh, but maybe the point that I have uh, uh, given a contribution to is that I stress very much the importance of the internal hierarchy of these two elements. Um, 
I said we have two elements in each uh, truth of the faith. For example, uh, Christ is both man and God. Mary is both mother and virgin. The church is both visible and invisible, namely an institution and a communion. And you can continue forever, all, all the truth of, of the faith. And not, not just dogma, I'm convinced also morals, also moral theology works that way. Um, so you always have this both end, uh, and that is clear to every classic Catholic, uh, if I may say so. Uh, the point is that uh, not everyone, especially in recent times, understands the importance of another element. So you have first the element of what I call bipolarity, which is what I just said, the two elements, bipolarity. Uh, um, but you have also another element, which is the hierarchy uh, between them. Uh, there is a primary element and a secondary one in every at-at, in every both end. And to um, understand what is uh, the first or, or the, the principal one, and what is the secondary one, is a very important task, both in faith and theology. Because if we reverse the internal hierarchy, uh, uh, there will be problems, and there have been problems each time that that has been done. Um, so, uh, in the faith and in theology, uh, you can fall into an error or even a heresy, not only if you deny the bipolarity, if you say, no, we don't have a both and we have an either-or. And that, of course, brings you to many error and even heresies. For example, if you say, uh, no, Mary is not both mother and the virgin, you have to choose. So you have to say, she's mother, then you will say, oh, so she's not a virgin, or vice versa. Of course, that's a heresy, if you deny the bipolarity. But the problem is, th the same is true if you maintain the bipolarity, but you reverse the internal hierarchy, and you put first what comes second, or vice versa. Um, uh, for example, uh, when you say that uh, um, that uh, uh, the church is both mystery and uh, a society, a visible society, and you don't stress the point that the church is, in the first place, a mystical body, a mystery of faith and grace, a, a supernatural communion among the baptized uh, who are uh, brothers and sisters because they are members of the same head. Uh, uh, and then uh, you might think that the most important element is the, the, the uh, bureaucratical or the, the visible aspect of the church. And that would be uh, clearly a mistake because you reverse the importance of the element. But by saying that, I'm not saying, of course, that uh, then you have to deny again the hierarchical or visible aspect of the church, because that would bring you to the first mistake of denying the bipolarity. But I'm saying that you have to put everything in its own place uh, with the proper order of importance. Uh, and we have seen, we have witnessed many mistakes, for example, for example, in moral theology lately, uh, due to the fact that theologians, and not only theologians, have sometimes, uh, or oftentimes, 
reverse the internal hierarchy of values. So for example, for the evaluation of a moral act, you have to consider the objective law, but also the subjective situation, okay? But of course, more important is the objective law without, you know, uh, taking away the consideration of the subjective element. But if you reverse this hierarchy of values and you put what is subjective first, then of course you understand that I can do a lot of things even against the law and that wouldn't be considered a sin just because subjectively speaking, I had my reasons or the circumstances or whatever else. You know? so this might be another example to say you shouldn't reverse the hierarchy and not only deny the bipolarity. <laughs> That's great. That's very insightful and so much in there we could unpack. We spent an episode just talking with this, this principle, I think, for an hour. So I I do want to move into talking about Mary and I mean this is I I chose this for a reason primarily because this is the stumbling block for so many Protestants and you treat it so well in this book but also because this is an enormous book and I could have chosen so many topics and what stood out to me very profoundly I I got to this chapter and I underlined things right away and I wrote wow in the margins because the way you frame or you approach Mary within this book about Catholic dogmatic theology and where she comes into the story is so fascinating. So you, you deal with kind of the, the Trinity and then along the, the, I think chapter four is Mary. And I thought, wow, he, he's really, you know, bringing her up really early on in this book of all things he could, he could tackle next, but you really explain so well why she belongs there and her importance. And I think I just, I thought of all the people that I want to have on my show to really explain Mary to our non-Catholic listeners and to help new Catholics understand her deeply, because also, Father, you know that people who become Catholic have a hard time, even once they're Catholic, really accepting Mary's role and growing to love her and understand her. But you, you seat her so well in Catholic theology when you bring her up. I want to help us there. First of all, if you could explain why you, why you begin to talk about Mary when you do in this book, because I think that first of all, is, is so important. Why does she belong right after the Trinity in your analysis of, of Catholic theology here? Sure. Uh, I mean, the, the, the outline of the book is in the first chapter, I explained the Atheist principle or Botan principle. Then uh, chapter two is fundamental theology, revelation, uh, faith and theology. Then I follow the, in a sense, the history of salvation because chapter three is the creator and creation, man, the angels, etc the creation of the visible world. And chapter four is the Redeemer, Christ. The chapter five uh, is the Sanctifier, the Holy Spirit, yeah, so the doctrine of grace, etc. You have the single person of the Trinity kind of, you know, acting uh, according to the appropriations of the different works in the history of salvation. Then chapter six is, is about the Trinity, like more of the speculative uh, insights and uh, reflection about the inner nature of God. Then chapter 7, many theologians would have uh, uh, treated of, uh, of the church, possibly, or the sacraments. But I, I dedicate it to Mary. And your answer, your question is, why? Well, uh, because, um, as, as, as some medieval authors uh, said, Mary, uh, uh, let me quote the, the Latin expression for once, she's the triclinium totius divinitatis, namely, the triclinium of the whole uh, godness, of, of, uh, of the whole trinity. Now, what is a triclinium? 
uh, a triclinium <laughs> among the ancient Romans uh, uh, was a room with three beds. You, you know that, that Romans would uh, uh, have their meals, uh, at least the noble ones, uh, rich people would have their meals not sitting at a regular table like we do, but, uh, you know, uh, laying down on kind of a sofa, okay, that was more comfortable. It was, it was uh, a table before it, and they would eat in that position. So a triclinium, uh, or triclinium in the English reading, is, uh, is, a, is, is basically a room with three of these beds, and there is a, a, a table at the center, so, uh, so the three guests can, you know, lay down, uh, relax, and eat and talk. So it's a place not only uh, to eat, but also to discuss, to relax. It's a place where you stay well. It's like a today's spa, if you want. Okay. So the idea was that, that Mary is like the triclinium of the Trinity, namely the place where God finds his relax. He, I mean, when he deals with me, who I'm a sinner, he has his problems in dealing with me, you know, because I'm problematic as every sinner. So he has to correct me, he has to help me. But when it comes to Mary, I mean, that is, you know, the fullness of joy and and rest and relax for God, for the Trinity, because there is no imperfection, there is no sin, there is nothing that contradicts God in that soul and in that body. So God can really find his home in Mary. He, 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 when he wants to find a place of rest, he is that that, that place is, is Mary's soul. Okay, so in that sense, the link of Mary with the Trinity is so strong and so tight that it came natural to my mind to speak of Mary right after the Trinity. Also, because in the theological tradition we speak of her. Uh, like with, utilizing titles such as, uh, you know, the, the daughter of, of the father, the mother of the son, the spouse and the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. All these t- titles and others, you know, tell us uh, about this relationship with the Trinity, which comes first and is more qualifying for Mary's character of her relationship to the church which is real. Of course, Mary has a real relationship with the church, but the relationship with God, and especially with her son Christ, is more uh, important. It determines more who Mary is. And I think that even from an ecumenical point of view, this is, this is stronger, because our uh, separated brethren, especially Protestants of different denominations, uh, they stress very much the importance, the centrality of God and Christ, right? Uh, and uh, even more than the church, especially the church as an institution, as far as I understand the Protestant belief. So, uh, uh, I mean, um, if uh, understanding, interpreting Mariology, the theology of Mary, more in relationship with God and Christ, I think it's also ecumenically more fruitful than speaking of her mostly as a disciple of Jesus, as a member of the church, which she is. But, but again, that comes next. It's, it's the same theme of the hierarchy of elements. So Mary is both related to the Trinity and to the church. Both are, or both are true, but what comes first? 
for me uh, and for all Catholic tradition except these last uh, decades, it, it goes without uh, saying it is doubtless that Mary's first, you know, the mother of God and related to the Trinity, and then also a member of the Church. That's fantastic. What are the things that you talk about? I mean, you talk about this idea of certainly finding rest in Mary, and I love that I underlined that passage and wrote wow in the margin. I think it's just, it's a beautiful image. The The non-Catholic listener hears that and says, but, but Father, why would... Why would she be a place for the Trinity to rest? Because we, before I became Catholic and listeners to this show, would have seen Mary as as a teenager who God chose to to bear Jesus as as his mother, but wouldn't have understood the idea of the Annunciation. And you treat it mostly in a footnote, I think, but so beautifully. I wonder if you can help just frame for a second why we as Catholics see her as being this sinless vessel that, that the Trinity could find rest in to begin with. What's in that idea of the angel appearing and, and calling her, you know, full of grace? What, what's going on there? Sure. Well, there are very many, many things to, to say about that scene, of course. Um, I think that that mark the importance of Mary. Why is Mary so important in our biblical faith? Because we see in the gospel that she was predestined from eternity by God to accomplish uh, an unrepeatable and unique mission in the history of salvation. No one but Mary is the mother of God. Uh, She's the mother of the Messiah, of course, But here is the point that the Catholic thought has made. Well, actually, every every Christian who accepts the tradition of the first millennium accepts that also, because this point was accepted officially by the Church in the first millennium at Ephesus, uh, the Council of Ephesus in the fifth century, uh, when, when the Church in practice accepted and canonized the theology of St. Cyril of Alexandria, who opposed the uh, heretic Nestorius, who denied that Mary was mother of God. Nestorius was the patriarch of Constantinople. He preached from his see that uh, Mary was the mother of Christ, not the mother of God. And he said so because, because he said she gave birth to the human nature of Jesus not to the divine nature of Jesus. So we shouldn't say that Mary is mother of God, because God, the Trinity, was not born from Mary, of course, uh, but only the human nature, which, literally speaking, is true. But why is Nestorius wrong? Now, that is not in my book, but I I, I say it in class. One of my courses is Christology and Soteriology at the university, so... So I say to my students to make them understand this principle, okay, let, let, let's imagine that I, I go to, you know, a hospital or somewhere where a person, a woman I know, you know, recently, you know, gave birth to her child. So I go there to congratulate with her, her husband, etc. And when I, when I walk in, I, I don't ask her and her husband, I don't ask, uh, uh, what did you bring to light? Uh, because that would uh, be uh, would put me in a bad position. I mean, what? It's a human being, of course. Uh, <laughs> it's not an animal or a rock. Of course, it's a baby. Right? But I, I asked the name. 
ask, uh, how did you call your son or your daughter? The name, because the name is the person. I don't need to know what that woman gave birth to. I know it's a man, it's a woman, uh, it's a human being. I know that. I don't ask what, uh, but uh, I ask the name. Who? Who is this person? Uh, and the same is true with Mary. I mean, when we imagine that we could be present at Jesus' birth, Nestorius is like a person who goes to Mary and asks her, what did you bring to the world? And of course, the answer is a human being, the human nature of Christ. But you never ask that question. You ask, who is this? Who is the person? And the person is the second person of the Trinity. It's God incarnated. That is his identity. And in that sense, even if it is true, strictly speaking, that Mary gave birth to Christ's human nature, of course, not the divine nature. The divine nature doesn't... Uh, wasn't wasn't born from from a creature, right? But uh, but that human nature is the human nature of the Son, who is God. That is his identity. The identity of that human being is that he is the Son of God incarnated. He, the, the person, and so. Uh, uh, by the way, in theology, that, that is called the communicatio idiomatum principle, but we don't have time for that now. But the problem is, yeah, the problem is, uh, uh, who is Jesus? Who is the person uh, that Mary uh, gave birth to in his humanity? And in that sense, we understand that she's the mother of God, because that human nature of which she's the mother is the human nature of God, and he is God. Jesus Christ is God as well as man. Um, so that makes the importance of Mary. Now, some of our Protestant uh, interlocutors say, uh, but that doctrine is not biblical. Uh, uh, well, yes and no, because, you know, in, in the gospel, when, when, when uh, Mary uh, goes to help her cousin Elizabeth, and she welcomes Mary, saying, uh, uh, how comes that the mother of my Lord comes to me? The mother of my Lord. Now, in Greek, that is the mother of my curios. Curios in Greek is Lord. And uh, we know that when the New Testament utilizes curios, that is equivalent to the Hebrew tetragram. The, 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 the word God in the Old Testament. And so, in other words, Elizabeth says to Mary, uh, uh, here there are different sensitivities. I have no problem in pronouncing uh, God's name from the Old Testament, but I don't know if for our hearers we like it, but if so, may, may, I, may I use the word? So we say Yahweh, right? Yahweh. Some prefer not to pronounce it, but uh, so when Elizabeth says, uh, the mother of my curious, it's like she were saying, the mother of, of Yahweh. So she's the mother of God. In that sense, um, it is true that we don't find the expression in Greek, mother of God in the New Testament, said in that way. But it, it is a biblical doctrine. And also St. Paul. St. Paul says that Christ was born of a woman. Right? So... Uh, so there are elements that make that uh, doctrine uh, very reasonable and credible also on a biblical basis. 
And uh, uh, to my opinion, the, the, the dogma of the maternity, the divine maternity of Mary, is the most important one which justifies the other dogmas that the Church has also defined and teaches. Yeah, so what do we make of her being called by the angel the, the, this term? I mean, she, she is the mother oh, yeah. of God, right? This is biblical. I mean, I love that you trace that out back to the Bible, because many Catholics would say, well, it's been... You, you began by saying, well, yeah, we've accepted this as Christians since the very beginning, very close to the beginning of Christianity, but you also throw back to the Bible and say, look, it's, it's also here too, so don't, don't, don't sweat it too much. I love that. What do we make then of the angel calling her essentially full of grace as we repeat in the rosary, what do we make of that, her being full of grace even prior to her accepting this this idea of, of carrying God? Sure. Uh, as we know, that Greek word, kekaritomene, uh, many times translated in, uh, with full of grace, there are other translations, but that is the, 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 the idea. Uh, um, that, that tells us that Actually, Mary was predestined to her role. There is a mystery of predestination because God foresees everything from eternity and he decrees his plan of salvation from eternity, uh, which is God's natural dimension, everything that God does is in eternity, of course. And so uh, Mary was predestined for from eternity to be uh, the most perfect creature after Christ, of course. So... Uh, uh, um, she's the masterpiece of creation. And she was uh, not only perfect in her nature, but she was endowed by God with all spiritual uh, graces uh, necessary for her unique and unrepeatable role of being the mother of God. And so when the angel comes, uh, he already calls her uh, full of grace because she was already perfected by grace, by a special and repeatable uh, gift of grace. Now, of course, if, if we speak uh, uh, in a strict sense, the one who is really absolutely full of grace is Christ alone. The real fullness of grace resides only in Christ, because he's the only one who is not only a man, but also God. And from that comes that the kind of grace that Christ has as a man is superior to everyone else. Uh, to say the least, Christ has a grace that no one else has, uh, the grace that theologians call the grace of union, which is the grace exactly of the hypostatic union. No one else is God incarnated, only Christ. So only Christ in his humanity received the grace of the union with God. Mary doesn't have the grace of union. Only Christ has it. So how, how can we say that she's full of grace? Because the, the idea of fullness is that it's full. You cannot add anything. Nothing is lacking. But we can say, but Mary lacks the, the grace of union. So she's not full. We might say she's almost full. No, no, but the angels doesn't say, doesn't say, you know, hello, almost full of grace. She, he says, he says, full of grace. So the, the, St. Thomas Aquinas explains that very beautifully. He says that the concept of fullness is related to the capacity of the recipient. So 
if I have a barrel of wine, I say this is full, right? Uh, and if I have a glass of wine, uh, of course, a glass can contain much less than a barrel can, but I can fill the glass and I will say that that is full. And it is full. I cannot add uh, even a single drop because it's really up to the brim. Uh, so, uh, but it's full, it's full. But, but one might say, but yes, it's not the same quantity as the fullness of the barrel, I know, but this is a glass, that's a barrel. So in that sense, if we speak in, a, in an absolute sense, the fullness of grace resides only in Christ, who is also the cause of grace. We receive grace through Christ, from Christ's grace. Uh, uh, but Mary is full of grace because she has the fullness of grace that is possible in a creature who is not God. While Christ has the fullness of grace in an absolute sense, because he has the fullness of grace, the plenitude of grace, in a creature who is also God. And this difference is important. So Mary is, uh, is the fullness, is a mystery of the fullness of realization of sanctification that God can make in a creature. So no one can be holy as Mary is holy. And I think right there, that's a beautiful way of putting that, Father. I think right there is one of those huge reasons why we as Catholics and the Catholic Church historically, as we've seen since since very early on in its history, has viewed Mary so highly because God chose her for this role, imparted her with this, with this fullness of grace. But then the second thing is her, her fiat, the fiat of Mary, because this is the other second reason why I think the Catholic Church sees her as so important, because she is she is chosen by God since the beginning of time to to have this role, but she also accepts that, right? Can we unpack the amazing... This, this is one of those show-stopping things to me, right? When you really understand what's going on here, that Mary... God... God knew it would happen. You'll, <laughs> you're the theologian, so I don't want to butcher this, but she says yes, right? That, that's a, a, a huge thing, right? God, of course, has decreed from eternity this plan on salva- of salvation. God doesn't change it, okay? And he is infallible, he's omnipotent, he's infallible in realizing it, okay? But uh, it is part of God's plan decided from eternity that he will realize it not without our cooperation. That is also part of God's decision from eternity. So God has decided that the history of salvation will have that direction, those steps, and that accomplishment. And he will do it. There is nothing that can prevent God, who is omnipotent, uh, to do what he wants to do, what he has decided to realize and bring about. But... It is part of the same will of God, which he has decided from eternity, that he will act together with us uh, by asking us a free cooperation to his plan. Um, and in fact, uh, I like to say that Mary, with her fiat, she's the, I use this word, correct me if it's unfitting, the guarantor of our freedom. She guarantees that we are free, even before the plan of God, that God proposes but never imposes his will on us. And he asks us, and he helps us, and he gives us all the graces we need to cooperate with him. He draws us to him, he attracts us, but he never forces us. You can always say no. You want to go to your damnation, that's 
that is really a shame, but you can if you want. You can lose eternally your soul if you want. Even if God doesn't want you to go, to go there, God wants you to be happy forever in heaven. But still, if you really don't want, you will not be forced. So in, in more uh, technical terms, I, I usually say that God is not an imperialist, is not a, a, a sociological imperialist. Namely, he has a kingdom and this kingdom will win. That is for sure. Uh, God will rule forever, but uh, uh, he will rule over those who wanted to accept his love. Uh, he will not impose his love. He will not impose happiness on people. Otherwise, otherwise, we would be nothing more than robots or computers. You know, God, you know, digits something, then, you know, return, and then I have to do it. And doesn't work there because when God uh, projected us as human beings, uh, he decided to make us free. Uh, and when he decided to create human beings free, he decided that we could use our freedom in a wrong way. He accepted it. He will do everything to help us. The only thing that he has decided not to do is to force our freedom. He will attract our freedom, he will sustain our freedom, he will support our freedom in every way with his grace, but he will not impose his plan on us. And so God, he, God he, I mean, he's the master of the, the universe. He could have said, Mary, uh, listen, you are a creature of mine. You have to do what I want you to do. And uh, from now on, you will be the mother of Jesus and there is nothing you can do about it. And uh, that would, wouldn't have been a sin on the part of God because, because God can do what he wants. He's the master. He possesses everything. We are his creatures. We belong to him. So he can use us as he wants. But he doesn't want to do it this way. Uh, so he asks. He's, he's, uh, when I was teaching in New York during my sabbatical year, I attended a, confer um, uh, yes, a conference with the, the famous philosopher, uh, Remy Brock, and he he gave us a wonderful speech. God as a gentleman. Okay, so in that sense, God is also is Lord. When you say Lord, Lord is is noble. Okay, so he's he's very he's very noble God. So he's he's gentle. He doesn't impose. He asks and helps. So he goes to Mary and says, uh, uh, "The Lord be with you." So God will support you. No matter what happens, no matter all the difficulties of life, God will be with you. So he promises and he accomplishes that he will support you. But uh, do you want to do this? So Mary could have said no. Uh, but uh, luckily for us and the whole, whole human race, she said yes. So the importance of that fiat is that not only that Mary is our representative before God, reversing the bad choices of Eve, but uh, that she, again, she's the guarantor of the fact that we are free, even before God. And that is very important. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic way of putting it, the guarantor, because, of course, if she hadn't said yes, we wouldn't have that freedom. It would be imposed from the beginning. I think that's so beautiful. And, again, it really highlights the, the importance of Mary in the in the plan of salvation and, and why in the Catholic Church 
um, we, we we treat her as we do, not not in the, in the place of God, but as a certainly as a this kind of pathway, this important pathway that was laid for us to to access God to begin with in Jesus. We could go. There's all kinds of these these dogmas, of course, we could tackle to do with Mary. And you mentioned they all kind of stem from her as Mother of God. And we talked about a little bit about the the Immaculate Conception, why and how she was created without sin. In order to be this, you know, the, the angel makes this clear when, when he arrives on the scene. Is there, we don't have time for all these, is there one dogma that you think really deserves, maybe doesn't, doesn't get a lot, of, a lot of attention? Or thinking about our, our separated brethren, our non-Catholic Christian listeners, one that you think is worth digging down to a little bit more that may be a bit misunderstood? I mean, I, I could choose one if you prefer, <laughs> but is there one <laughs> that's burning on your heart? Well, <laughs> uh, it's uh, hard to choose, you know, but uh, uh, yeah, I said something about Mother of God, which is the, the first one, of course, and Immaculate is also important. Again, we, we can find a, a Christological link to this for our uh, uh, Protestant brethren that, I mean, the spotless lamb is Jesus. But, uh, I mean, I think the point is this, basically, to uh, help our friends to accept Mariology, as we Catholics do, that we are not opposed on the Christocentric character of our faith. Catholics, too, are very Christocentric, at least as I understand Catholic faith and as I uh, live uh, my Catholic faith. But Christ is the very center. Uh, uh, he, he is the mediator. He's the only mediator. He's the only savior. There's no, I mean, there's no doubt about it for us Catholics. But the point is, if we want a Christocentrism that is um, absolute or uh, exclusivistic or inclusive. So if you want a Christocentrism that is uh, exclusivistic, it means that you, to point to Christ and Christ alone, as Luther says, you have to exclude everything else, in a sense. While we Catholics prefer to have Christocentrism again, but it, it Christ is so rich, the mystery of Christ is so rich, that it, it, it gives room to a, a, a vast participation of his fullness. Okay? And that doesn't take away the centrality of Christ or the fact that without Christ we cannot do anything. Uh, uh, the salvation is in Christ alone. We all agree about that. But this salvation works in, a, in an exclusivistic way, or can we include other cooperators to Christ? We think we, we can do it. We think that the gospel says that expressly, for example, that Christ associated the apostles with ministry. And so there is a participation to the fullness of Christ. So Mary, the mystery of Mary, is totally related to the mystery of Christ. And I think that every person who has a biblical faith can understand and accept uh, and value this point that the greatness of Mary, why Mary is so important, because she's the one that cooperates with Christ better. She's the one to which Christ participates more uh, graces. She's his mother. I mean, we have to, to, to remember that Christ has a body. He had blood running in, into his veins, and all that, the cells of the body of Christ, all that came from Mary. That, that, that is, I mean, biblically uh, acceptable, right? So the, the, the problem is, how can we imagine that Mary, 
who gave the flesh, the cells, the blood to the Son of God is not important. Of course, we don't, do not substitute Mary for Christ. Christ remains, of course, our Lord, Lord God and Savior, not Mary, Christ. But, but there is room for Mary, the saints, the angels, the apostles. And I think this is the, the point, I mean, to have an inclusive Christocentrism. Christ is the real spotless lamb, but that doesn't take away the immaculate mother, because Christ took his immaculate flesh from the immaculate flesh of Mary. Christ couldn't have taken his flesh from a flesh stained by sin. That explains the immaculate conception. Also, ever virgin is very important. Maybe this is the dogma we should stress more in our time, because... We live uh, in a hard uh, uh, time, in a hard epoch, in which uh, sexuality is distorted, and uh, and uh, we think uh, many times that happiness comes from a distorted use of a sexuality. It is a constant temptation, even for good Catholics and Christians in general. Even people who pray, you go to the liturgy, you go to worship in their different churches and temples. I mean, it is, it is so pervasive now. You find it on TV, you find it on the internet. It's really terrible. It's, uh, so we really have to stress this importance of, of Mary, of sign, of, of the importance of, of virginity and chastity, even even uh, matrimonial chastity, because, because the virtue of ch- it exists uh, a perfect uh, continence for the kingdom of God, but there is also continence in the matrimony, which doesn't mean that uh, the, the, the husband and wife don't have their natural intercourse, but it means that it's regulated by the law, the law of God. And that is a form of chastity too. It's, a, it's the, the typical form of chastity and purity of the matrimony, of the Christian matrimony. So the, the purity, purity uh, is very important. And I mean, this mystery of Mary is, both real mother and both real virgin and never virgin, uh, it, it's, it's a real sign of hope in these tormented times we are experiencing now. Uh, now, I don't have time about now, but in my book, I also explain why, why there, are, there are biblical reasons, New Testament uh, reasons, if I may even proofs that show that the New Testament offers ground to support the dogma of Mary of a Virgin. And we don't have to think that after Jesus was, of, of course, conceived supernaturally, we don't have to think that Jesus, um, Mary and Joseph had other children in a natural way, uh, as some claim. Um, no, I mean, uh, again, there are, there, are, there are proofs, but we, we don't have time to discuss them here. Um, uh, so, so maybe this point of Mary of a Virgin would be more important. And final, the final and fourth dogma that the Church has defined so uh, thus far is the assumption of Mary, both body and soul, in heaven. And here too, I see I see a Christological link, which is very strong. Of course, resurrection belongs to Christ, but it is interesting that I mean, Mary is his mother. He, she's without sin. We know that death is a consequence of sin. So uh, why would have Mary remained in the tomb if she's immaculate, without sin? She's the mother of God. Also, in a sense, it doesn't make honor to Christ to think that he as a son would leave the body of his mother to rot 
in, in the ground, right? So which son having the power to prevent that from happening wouldn't do it for his mother? And if we were bad, would do it for our mothers, how much more the perfect son would have done it and he did it for his mother. But, but not only that, but also the fact that, uh, I mean, Mary assumed into heaven both body and soul is, is a great sign of hope for us, which confirms what St. Paul says of Christ in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Because when Paul speaks of the resurrection of Christ to the Corinthians, he, he scandalized that there were some among the Corinthians, not all the Corinthians, but Paul says accurately, some among you, who denied not the resurrection of Jesus, but our resurrection, bodily resurrection. So they would stand for the resurrection of Jesus, but as an exception, as a, as a unique case. But they say, yes, Jesus rose, but we will not with the flesh. And, and Paul really really opposes them strongly, uh, that he says, if there is no resurrection from the flesh, then uh, Jesus did not rise either. Right? So Mary is a sign of hope for us that what Paul says that of Jesus is true. I mean, we have at least one person besides Christ who rose already with her flesh, with her body, and she's in heaven. She's perfected in heaven, in her glorious body and soul. And it's a sign of hope for us because we believe in the resurrection of the flesh, as the creed says. And in Mary, we see that that is accomplished. Because if only Christ were in heaven with his body, we would say, well, okay, like the, those Corinthians, yeah, yeah, he's Christ, you know, but who knows? About, no, 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 there is at least another person, a human person in this case, Mary, who is not God and is in heaven with her body. So it's possible. Okay, so it's 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 a good sign of hope for us. <laughs> That's so well said, and I love the idea of this Christocentric view, and the idea. This is what I tried to explain on this show before, and I've had I've had conversations with with friends and people through email, all kinds of things, talking about the idea that as Catholics, yeah, Christ is at the center, but we allow for this the saints for Mary to point back to Christ. Like we see the the beauty, I think we see in Mary, in, in her assumption, in her being ever virgin, in the Immaculate Conception, the beauty we see in those things, those are things that Christ has done. We see him through those things, right? Sure. I mean, the, uh, the Catholic doctrine uh, speaks of uh, a participated mediation. There is the only and unique mediation of Christ, and one can substitute that. He's the only high priest uh, and savior. But he's so powerful that he can share his power of mediation without losing it. And everyone that receives a small partial participation to Christ's power doesn't take away anything from Christ and is totally dependent from Christ and on Christ. So I also have to say there is a contradiction among some uh, Protestant theologians who deny a participation to the power of Christ to marry the apostles, and so they deny the priesthood and so forth, the ordained priesthood. But then they accept it when it comes to speak of uh, religious pluralism. They say uh, uh, Christ is not the only way because uh, God can establish other ways. So in that sense, they accept the idea of a participation of the only of the unique salvation to other ways in that field, but they don't accept it. Uh, within the church itself, Mary, the apostles, priests, uh, popes, uh, bishops, and so forth. 
or even baptized Christians who have also an apostolate in their own field, uh, like the one you do here with you know, this important initiative. This is a form of, of apostolate that you're doing as a baptized Catholic, as a believing Catholic. So it's a participation of, of the apostolate of Christ that you are performing. Uh, and, uh, and why uh, we cannot accept this and you accept that other religions could be a participation to this. And that, that is, I see a contradiction there. Yeah, 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 definitely. And even even the idea that that we can pray for one another as living Christians, we can we can ask, you know, my friends says, "Hey, pray for me. I'm going through a hard time, and I pray for them." But yet somehow, and this always confused me as a non-Catholic Christian. I can't ask a Christian that I know who's gone before me, who I believe would be in heaven. I can't. You know, they, they can't hear me, can't interact, can't do anything. The, the richness of the Catholic faith for me as a convert was suddenly that I am part of this, this inclusive Christ, Christocentric religion where I can see Christ in all these saints and in other Catholics who are living. What I love and, and honor and find beautiful is Christ in those people, and they can pray for me. They can they can pray for me just like I am alive, can, can pray for you, right? That... That was an enormous shift becoming a Catholic. And again, there's that logic. Well, of course, we're all part of that body of Christ. Living or on earth or in heaven, we, we can pray for one another. Yes, we, we speak of the, the communion of, uh, of the saints, uh, which is based on the doctrine of the body of Christ, which is also biblical. St. Paul speaks of it. Uh, but, um, uh, but also when Jesus in the, in the gospel, you know, he opposes the Sadducees, who denied the resurrection of, of, uh, of humans, uh, our resurrection. Um, and uh, he says, have you, read, have you not read in the, in the scripture uh, that God is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob? God is not God of the dead, but of the living, because all living God. So Jesus himself says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they were, of course, dead at the time when Jesus spoke those words, they were living in God. And so uh, people could have asked Abraham, uh, Isaac, or Jacob, even if dead, to speak to God on their behalf because they were living in God, says Jesus. So um, again, if we, if we really uh, consider doctrines without um, prevention uh, or prejudice, we see that... Uh, either directly or indirectly, uh, they always have a reference to what Jesus has said or done or the Bible, uh, along with tradition for us Catholic, of course, uh, tradition goes along with, with the Bible. But, but uh, uh, we are not Biblicists, but uh, we, of course, we, we, we love, respect, and learn from the Bible all the time. So, so uh, it is important for our... Uh, fellow of the brethren, Protestant, who value the Bible so much, and of course they do well, uh, that w- we, we do it also. I mean, we love the Bible too, <laughs> and our doctrines are also biblically founded. I think it's important to, to emphasize this point. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, I have one more question for you, and we could talk all day, of course. We really could, and I thank you for this conversation that we're having here. It's just, it's so fantastic. Mary's role today in the church, how do we as Catholics see? Because, of course, 
the non-Catholic Christian looks at this and says, "Okay, Mary was had a, had a clear importance as as being the mother of God. If they can go that far, which which some might not, very important role in in bringing Christ to life on 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 Earth. But that's where her role ended, and that's kind of the end, the sum total of of who she is in the plan of salvation. We Catholics, of course, see her as much more important than that. You've unpacked a lot of that for us already, and the reasons why I think they're very." very much worth considering and, and thinking about for those who aren't Catholic yet and helps for us, those new Catholics to kind of illuminate our belief in our and the importance we place in Mary. But what would you say her role is today in general terms? What is Mary doing for the church today? Hmm. Well, in the first place, I would say that uh, here too, uh, the reason why Mary is so important for us in the church is again Christ. Uh, because she's the mother of the head of the body. And as the fathers of the church said, uh, when she gave birth to Christ, she didn't give birth to the head alone, but to the head attached to the body. So in that sense, we, the members, were born from Mary uh, in a mystical sense along with the Son. Uh, what she does for us today is basically what she has always done. She, she, has, she develops uh, many roles in the church uh, because Christ so willed. In that, in that sense, it is clear to Catholic Mariology uh, and Catholic Marian devotion that uh, all the, the privileges and the elements that make Mary so great, they are so not out of a necessity, but of a choice of Jesus. I mean, Jesus could have done without Mary, for sure. Jesus can do everything without anyone. Okay, so Mary is not necessary in the strict term of the sense, and we know that in Catholic theology. Uh, but uh, but uh, on the other, in another sense, Mary is so necessary for us of a necessity uh, linked to the decision of her son. Her son, who could do without his mother, he decided that he wants to work with her. In that sense, we need her. She uh, vehiculates to us the graces of her son. Again, grace doesn't come from Mary. Grace comes from Christ. But Christ decided that uh, we should take his mother with us. He said that to John at the foot of the cross. So, uh, again, no one forced Jesus to do that choice, but he did. Uh, and we have to to obey. We have to comply with it, right? So we have to take his mother with us among our um, dearest uh, things, as the, the as the, the the Greek of of the Gospel of John says. Uh, there is a word there utilized that, that says that. But, so um, uh, the refusal of Mary, in a sense, is the refusal of a decision of Jesus on the cross. And uh, I don't want anyone to feel bad, but just to think about, right? So, and uh, and if somebody thus far has rejected Mary, from now on he can he or she can accept her, and uh, and and then I promise your life will be much better and sweeter. <laughs> uh, it's better to have a mother, right? Um, and so she she helps us, and she's very very. Uh, loving uh, with, with, with uh, those her son has redeemed. So we, we know that uh, Christ, the, the price of our salvation is the blood of Christ. 
Mary saw the blood, the most precious blood of her son running down and running out from his body and running down on the wood of the cross. What kind of a scene to watch for a mother? Hmm? And she saw that. Uh, and she knows that he did so for us. Uh, how couldn't she love us with the greatest possible love, knowing that her son gave his precious blood for us, that we are so precious for her son that he died for us in that terrible way. So uh, Mary values us so much because Christ valued us so much. So she intervenes. She's, all, she's a mother, she's an intercessor, she prays for us, she uh, obtains for us graces. She's also an image of the spotless church. The, the Immaculate Mother as an image of the Holy Church, the church which is without sin, even if, unfortunately, we, the members of the church, do sin. Uh, and she's a model of uh, holiness for us. We can look at her and find inspiration uh, on how to live in this life, imitating Christ by following also the example of Mary, the way she imitated her son. So again, everything is Christocentric or Christocentric, I don't know how to pronounce it, but uh, Christ is the center, and Mary is the point that is closer, uh, or is the closest point to that center, so that if we get closer to Mary, of course, automatically we get closer to the real center is Christ. So there can be no damage and no harm in developing a Marian devotion because it's biblical, it's Christocentric, it helps us in holiness, in being better members of the church, and get clo in getting closer to the real center is Christ. <laughs> that's, that's so well said. Father, thank you so much for being here. The, the book is Truth is a Synthesis. It is out from Emmaus Academic, and I'll put an, a link in the show notes uh, for listeners to check that out if they want a good uh, book for reading or for weightlifting. It's also good, I think, uh, in that case. Father, I want to say God bless you and your fantastic work for the church. Thank you for your, your priesthood, your ministry, your work with these fantastic books you are writing, and thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me here, and uh, God bless you and your family and all the people who have followed us. Thank you so much. Well, there it was, guys, my fantastic discussion with Father Mauro Gagliardi. I really hope you loved that conversation. Uh, it was so phenomenal. And again, I encourage you to watch it as well on YouTube at youtube.com slash the Cordial Catholic. As you'll see, Father Mauro is such a jovial, kind, and, 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 and warm guy to speak to. He's smiling the whole time. He's excited about this theology. And you can really see his eyes in such a, a livid, not livid, that's the wrong word, a lively conversation. And I hope you really in, enjoyed that. I did waffle too, but have but titling this show, I could have called it something very erudite and very very ethereal and, and intellectual because Father Mara, of course, has written this giant thousand-page book on Catholic theology, but I thought of making it more accessible to our non-Catholic or new Catholic listeners and just really tackling the, that main issue of what's the big deal about Mary and, and why Catholics make a big deal so 
hopefully the episode title is not too misleading to the conversation within, because it's quite intellectual and, and I think, anyway, fantastic. The CordialCatholic.com is our website for show notes and my blog. We're Cordial Catholic on Instagram and Twitter. The Cordial Catholic on YouTube and Facebook as well. Please check out those platforms and engage with us, please. I love getting uh, in touch with you guys and engaging on social media. And emails can go to CordialCatholic at gmail.com. I love those too and get back to those as soon as I can. It takes a while sometimes, but I do love your emails. Please do rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts if you can. It helps to push the podcast out to new people. And please do support us if you can at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. Thanks for listening, guys. Take care and God bless. Talk to you next time. This podcast is brought to you in a special way by our co-producers, Gina, Aram, Suzanne, Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, and Stephen. Thanks for your support of the show. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.